Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast by the Geider Institute at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Ambassador Greg Dowd, Chief U.S. Agricultural Negotiator in the Office of the United States Trade Representative. Ambassador Dowd, thanks so much for being on Trade Matters today. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to talk with you about the U.S.-China Phase 1 deal, something I know you've been talking a lot about lately. And one thing I've noticed is that a lot of the headlines seem to focus on two things. One, whether China is on track to meet its purchase commitments of U.S. products that agreed to it agreed to, to do under that deal. And two, whether or not Presidents Trump and Xi are talking or not, or cabinet officials are talking with their Chinese counterparts. But I want to talk about something else, something you've been emphasizing lately, which is the part of the deal where China agreed to make 57 structural changes that improve market access for agricultural goods. Um, and you've mentioned lately that China's followed through on about 50 of those 57 things. Um, one example you've cited is that the U.S. now has 3,500 facilities approved to export agricultural products to China, up from 1,500 before. Could you give us another example or two of what some of those 57 things are that China agreed to do? Absolutely. In fact, if you look at the Chapter 3, the agricultural chapter of the Phase 1 agreement, and it's online on our website, I would encourage people to go read it. Um, it isn't really a trade agreement document per se as much as it is just kind of a, a uh, these are the things that both countries agree to do going forward. And and as you said, in agriculture, in that there are some 57 things, and it didn't start out to be we knew exactly what those were or how we were going to do this. Uh, but there are 17 different segments of this, uh, you know, 23, 24, 25 pages of, of uh, what we came up to. And, and, and some of the examples are, you know, um, the poultry market was closed to China because of high path avian influenza. Uh, we agreed to open up the poultry market, but more importantly, we got China, which was critical to have a regionalization protocol saying, if we ever get another high path avian influenza case, whatever state that's in, you just close the state and the rest of the country stays open. And that was really important because it wasn't just a couple months after this entered into force, we actually did have a high path avian influenza case again in South Carolina. And we had just gotten this agreement done with China. And and so uh, China kept the rest of the market open. They closed uh, South Carolina for a few months. And actually here, uh, not long ago, a few months ago, they reopened South Carolina. So having, and we've sold uh, China now something like $350 million worth of poultry, and, and we think that'll be close to a billion dollar market for us. So that that's one piece of it. We got the beef market almost fully open for the first time ever. Uh, you know, we only sold beef uh, about, what, 10 or $15 million worth of beef uh, to China in 2002 before we got Mad Cow in 2003. We'd never had the Chinese beef market fully open. Uh, the only thing we're really lacking right now is a resolution on the ractopamine issue. Uh, trade name for that is Optiflex, and, and we're working on that now. That's one of the remaining things uh, that we've got to do. So, uh, the, the real answer to this is um, there were only a couple commodities, corn or excuse me, uh, soybeans and cotton that didn't have some sort of structural problem. We couldn't sell pet food to China. We got that resolved um, here in mid Bay. Uh, there was a remarkable situation where we were op China agreed to open for the first time for fresh potatoes, nectarines, avocados, blueberries, feed and malting barley, alfalfa pellets. But one of the things that they had to do to, to do that is they wanted to do an audit. 
Well, of course, during COVID, there was no way China could come over here and do that audit. So uh, our APHIS folks at USDA videoed an audit that they would do. We sent China the video, and lo and behold, uh, China uh, looked at the video and said, no, that, that looks good, and they opened for all of these different commodities. Uh, the, the last point I would make would be on dairy. Our dairy exports to China are up so far this year 27%, and that's if you look in that agreement, there are a lot of very specific things on dairy. Probably the biggest section of ag is on dairy. And uh, we have a new health certificate with China on dairy. We've got new products approved. You know, China imports $12 billion in dairy products, and we really never had this right in terms of the number of facilities and the new products that we have, like ultra-filtered milk. Uh, so these are the some of the examples of just a multitude of examples that have changed in our relationship in agriculture between the U.S. and China. Okay, so a couple of points to follow up on there. One is, do any of these changes that you've just mentioned, or, or any of the other 57 changes overall, um, do they open up China's markets to the rest of the world, or are they really specific to the U.S.? So that's one follow-up. And, and the second one is, how quickly do you start to see um, sales or products moving once a change, these types of changes are made? It sounds like, you know, you mentioned dairy exports are up quite a bit. So how long does it take for um, us to see the impacts of these changes in terms of more U.S. exports, more goods flowing to China? Well, I don't think there's any question that uh, other countries have, have watched what we are doing. They've definitely taken notice. Um, one of the examples I would say is in terms of uh, Vietnam and biotech in particular, the fact that we're we're moving China forward on the use of biotechnology in agriculture. Um, I, I would say in terms of timing, uh, you know, we didn't really, uh, th this agreement went and in, entered into force in mid-February, but a real important timeline here was the March 2nd exclusions process began uh, where, where uh, the 301 tariffs were exempted by China on March the 2nd. That That's when this thing really began to kick off. And, and since that time, then in March, and, and with these 57 things, we had all kinds of, we had 57 different timelines of five days, 10 days, 20 working days, 30 days, one month, two months. And, and so as we went down through all of these, and then it took a little while to get it up and running, and then it took a little while to get the, the product shipped over there. So you're really only beginning to, now to see in, in the trade data, and in particular, the export sales, uh, the, the, the agreement really kick in. Okay. And do, the, do any of these structural changes have any impact on China's ability to meet its purchase commitments? The other part of the deal, that one, the one that seems to get more attention in the media, at least? Or is that separate? Uh, no, they're directly tied together. And so, uh, again, the key point here is that other than for soybeans and cotton, there was almost not another single commodity that wasn't restricted in one way or another. And and I think this is a key point. We, we began this conversation uh, a year and a half ago with China. There were some 33 negotiating sessions the shortest of which would have been a four-hour video conference, the longest of which would have been an all-day, even almost 10- or 12-hour day, either in Beijing or here in Washington. We had 33 of those. We spent hundreds of hours talking about all of these problems that we had in our trading relationship and how to get our two countries 
more aligned from a regulatory standpoint. When we started these conversations, we had no idea where this was going to lead. China really didn't either. And, and it was the over the course of these hundreds of hours that we began to galvanize and we began to realize okay, this is the problem, and this is what we need to do to fix it. This is the problem, this is what we need to do to fix it. And and then we had to negotiate the, the words on, on what the fix meant and, and then actually get China to do it. And that's the amazing thing uh, is over the course of that year-long discussion, uh, we had we came up with those 57 things, and now we've actually fixed 50 of the 57 things. So you mentioned the 33 negotiating sessions on, on the agriculture portion of the deal that, that you took part in, you and your team. Is that um, typical compared to other aspects of the deal or others who were negotiating um, non-agriculture provisions? Is that you know a typical number of negotiating sessions effort? I know agriculture is usually a really tough issue in trade negotiations. It's different than other goods or services. So putting that into context, how would you, how would you answer that? Uh, absolutely not. Um, in fact, uh, I, I, will, I will confide in you that when we, when we signed this agreement at the White House, my counterpart said to me, Greg, China has never done anything like this before with any other country. And then I looked at him and I said, Vice Minister, neither have we. <laughs> this has been an enormously difficult negotiation discussion. Uh, there, there is no other word to describe it other than historic. And, and I think had either one of us realized the undertaking that was about to take place when we started this, I, I, I think it would have nobody would, could have imagined the level of detail that we went into and, and the complexity of these issues and, and the fact that both sides, not only have both sides worked really, really hard to sort this out, but both sides have worked really, really hard to implement uh, this agreement and, and to get where we are today. And, and so where we are today is a situation where uh, in, in the last two months, about half of our ag export sales are going to China. Uh, you know, if you look at the baseline of 2017, it was like 18 or 20 percent. So we, we've really changed the, the paradigm and, and the dynamic here, uh, especially on the meat side of the equation and on the dairy side of the equation. So what would you say most makes this deal so historic? Is it the the scope that you know what were you what you were able to accomplish with these you know fifty seven changes and that and the fact that they are being implemented? China's following through. Um, things are moving. Exports are happening where they wouldn't have before. So how would how would you pinpoint or summarize the historic nature of this deal? Well, I, I think the the challenge, the complexity of this discussion was that our two systems of government could not be more different. They, I mean, they're just not possible to have, even though the, we're the two largest economies in the world, the way we regulate things, the way we, we do things from a from a regulatory standpoint, whether it's in agriculture or many other things, but especially in agriculture, they're just very different. And, um, and then you have the language barrier, which is extraordinary. And so when you have these two the, the enormous differences in our economic systems, so the discussion was, how do we bring this together? How do we, how do we get to a situation where we can do business together? And, and it, was, it was an historic effort because they were really trying and we were really trying. And I think, I think for the first time, we, it just took time to, to do this. Let me, let me give you an example. 
is uh, we were trying to sell them uh, what you see in the grocery stores now in, in a 7-Eleven or a convenience store, Fairlife milk, which is the new uh, extended shelf life ultra filtered milk. And uh, China had no regulation to do this. It was, it was a, well, we think it's this. No, 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 no. It doesn't fit here. It doesn't fit here. And so we had to get China to create a new regulation to deal with this. And we were so frustrated at one point that Undersecretary McKinney at USDA during a lunch break here in Washington walked over a block to the 7-Eleven and bought $17 and so many cents. He can tell you actually the exact value of it still. It was an entire armload of Fairlife milk and brought it over and handed it out to each one of the uh, individuals in the Chinese delegation and said, here, try this. This is what we're trying to, to deal with here. And and they all drank. I was like, wow, this is really good. This would really sell in China. And we were like, we know we can't get it into the country because you don't have, you're not approving these facilities because you don't understand what this product is. And we got to create a regulation for you to do this. And they were like, oh, okay. And we did that. We, we accomplished that. And, and there were so many examples like that where we just had to move uh, the, the whole regulatory system forward between our two countries and help them understand uh, you know how we regulate things and do business things in the United States, whether it's with the Food Safety Inspection Service or FDA. And, and throughout this discussion, uh, we had our best people from the FDA here. We had our best people from FSIS, Food Safety Inspection Service, APHIS, uh, in, in the room, and they had their best people. And it was, uh, you know, how do you translate back and forth? How do you get the regulations to match up where we can actually do business? And and it took hundreds of hours to get that done. You know, I've also heard you say recently that even now, um, you and your team still have um, very frequent, significant contact with your Chinese counterparts ongoing as this deal is being implemented. Um, And again, it's not something you hear much about in the headlines. And I think it's a good reminder that this big, complex bilateral relationship is managed at many levels in many ways. So I wonder if you could Tell us, you know, your thoughts, given your experience here, how, how do you assess the role of agriculture, of U.S. agriculture in the overall U.S.-China relationship? And can it be more of a ballast in light of the many troubled areas in other aspects of our relationship right now, like on human rights or sovereignty disputes in the South China Sea or tech competition? How do, how do you view agriculture in the midst of all that? Uh, the answer is I absolutely and definitely think that uh, agricultural trade between the U.S. and China can be a ballast. I, I, the word I would use, we, we refer to it as a pillar uh, of our relationship. And, and I think that's absolutely the case. And I want to give you some, some data to give you some context on this. Uh, it was two years ago that China's ag imports from the entire world were $124 billion dollars. Last year, they were $133 billion. We think this year, uh, China is on track to import $141 billion in ag products from the entire world. That $141 billion number is interesting because $141 billion was exactly the totality of U.S. ag exports to the entire world last year. So having a re- this, getting this relationship right is critical for U.S. farmers and ranchers. Why? Because China's total ag imports from the world are the same as U.S. total ag exports to the entire world. So our potential in, 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 in terms of purchases in the phase one agreement, what we're trying to do is take China from about $24 billion to about $40 billion in ag purchases, ag imports from the United States. 
given so we're taking, we're going from 24 to 40 out of 141 if we make these structural change and get them in place like we have done now 50 of the 57 and and get instead of 1500 facilities 3500 facilities eligible to export our products to China that that has to be done in order to get attain that move from 24 to 40 billion dollars okay Thanks for putting that into context here. And what about the, I guess, if 50 changes are underway, what about the seven outstanding ones? What can you say about kind of where those stand or, or how those are unfolding? Well, those, some of those changes are, you know, ongoing and very difficult. One of those changes is obviously in the context of biotechnology. And, and that uh, we, we made a lot of progress with China on that topic. Did we get everything that we wanted to get in terms of changes on, on how China is going to approve biotech traits in the future? The answer is no, we didn't. But here, here's the key point. You ask about the dialogue and the discussion between our two countries. We are talking to China at, at a certain level in our government, whether it's at a technical level or my level or above my level, almost every day. You know, once a week, several times a week, and and these conversations are really good, really professional, uh, really courteous. They have issues and questions. We have issues and questions. We can sit down and 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 talk back and forth, and and we do that very very often. And as in the course of all of these conversations, issues come up that we didn't think about during all this. And, and how do we want to deal with this and move this forward? I want everybody to know that in terms of agriculture, that dialogue has been really good. And, and I'm hopeful that as things come up in the future through this dialogue, we're going to be able to, to uh, raise issues and, and say, uh, you know, whatever. We have a process now to discuss and, and move through these issues and not just let them fester and, and, and not get resolved. And I, and I think that's a key, key step in our relationship between our two countries. And, and having that in agricultural trade and in trade in general, uh, given the size of our two econom- economies, is critical. Thank you for that. And, and pivoting for just a second to a different part of the world, I want to ask you a question about US-EU negotiations. Um, you know, it, when those negotiating objectives were published, the, the US really wanted agriculture to be on the table in negotiating a trade agreement with the European Union. The EU did not want it to be on the table. Um, I have seen the, the recent agreement on lobsters um, that, that has gone through. But Overall, I mean, how do you even begin to to loosen that kind of stance when the U.S. really wants to negotiate access for our agricultural products with a very large market like the EU, but the EU really does not want to do that? Or how do you even start um, on something like that? Uh, you you could not be more correct. Uh, I, I could you know use a lot of different adjectives to describe dealing with the EU when it comes to agriculture. Suffice it to say, they are a major challenge for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and when you look at look at the EU, our frustration is is a couple of major issues. Number one, our trade deficit with the EU is $180 billion. In agriculture, the trade deficit is $18 billion. They send us $18 billion more in ag products than we send them. And and so there, there's really, on, on its face, um, just pure protectionism going on in the EU. And, and the in the context of that protectionism, it involves technology and the use of technology in agriculture. Uh, the, the way I articulate it often is, is the fact that in the EU, they want to go back to using a stick and flint rock versus matches in agriculture. 
uh, and you know they have this new farm to fork initiative which is kind of farm to empty fork if you ask me hmm. um, this use of technology in agriculture in the United States is something that we are not going to go backwards on ever in the United States in agriculture we are going to continue to use all the technology safe, proven, effective, efficiently as we possibly can, and we are not going to apologize for it. And and that right there is, is where the EU and the U.S. Uh, are locking horns in our trading relationship in agriculture, is over the use of technology. And do you see any prospects for any movement on that? It sounds like maybe not, but I want to ask you, you know, directly if you see that loosening up at all at any point. Uh, I think uh, in a in a second uh, term of, of this administration, uh, we relish the opportunity to take this head on okay. uh, with the European Union. Okay. Now, one one thing I would say is the fact that I don't see the UK in our uh, current negotiations with the UK in a free trade agreement. I don't see the UK in any way the same way that I see the EU. I think there is enormous opportunities for us to peel back and, and get the UK to a point where they are willing. And I think they want to use biotechnology in agriculture. I think they want to they want to move into the 21st century and, and the use of technology in agriculture in the UK. And I, I think there is a huge opportunity for both countries here uh, to really take a step forward in agriculture. So I want to ask you a, a question, too, on how you view um, your role in terms of engaging the public within your overall role as chief ag negotiator. So I, I know you were in western Nebraska and other parts of the state earlier this month um, and talked to a lot of people. H- how, do you, how do you view um, public engagement um, within, as I said, your overall role as chief ag negotiator, and, and how do you integrate what you might be hearing from farmers, producers, others on the ground into your job? Well, I, personally, it is a thrill to me anytime I get to get out uh, and, and talk to farmers and ranchers directly. You know, I grew up on a farm uh, 60 miles straight south of Hastings. And uh, still, I'm very involved in, in farming, or at least I was until I took this job, and hopefully I'll be involved again uh, at some point. Um, so that, to me, is, is uh, you know getting out and helping farmers understand uh, our level of engagement internationally. They all understand how important trade is. And, and that, so that's one aspect of it that I love. And, and you travel like crazy in this job. And, and uh, my wife knew that before I took the job. Uh, the last six months, notwithstanding due to COVID, but uh, I'm inching to get back out on the road again. And then getting out to Nebraska was terrific. One of the other things, though, I think that is helpful for everybody to understand is that, you know, we don't negotiate our deals in public. It, these are very sensitive conversations. You have to be very careful. And, and uh, we rely on, I rely on, uh, this system of advisory committees in agriculture. And these folks are appointed. Uh, they're selected. They get security clearances where we can have very direct conversations that they cannot share about uh, you know when we when we get stuck on an issue how what is the best way to move forward and and these folks come to Washington on on a pretty regular basis at least a couple times a year in fact uh, here next week uh, we're getting ready to have uh, one of those conversations with these folks again and that relationship and those discussions are absolutely critical in the in and when you're really uh, in the throes of the negotiation, and, and uh, you need to figure out a way to move forward. You, I have a team of people that I can consult in the industry and at the farm gate uh, that can help me make these decisions. Okay. 
Thank you, Ambassador Dowd. One more question for you. Last question, which I ask every guest on this show. Sure. Um, I don't know how much time you have to read <laughs> or how much spare time you have, but I ask everyone, um, what is something you've read lately, a book, report, article about trade that's particularly striking to you, other than the phase one deal that you helped negotiate? What else have you read lately about trade? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point you to three things. Okay. Uh, here uh, on I, I, August 20th, in the Wall Street Journal, there was an op-ed written by my boss, Ambassador Lighthizer, uh, in, in, regarding reform of the WTO, World Trade Organization. August 20th, Wall Street Journal, go look that article up. It mm-hmm. is fantastic. One of the great pieces written about trade and and uh, this administration's view on trade was actually written by Ambassador Lighthizer, and it was published this summer in Foreign Affairs magazine. Mm-hmm. And and I think every, that's a longer document, but I think everybody should read that as well. And, and me personally, uh, one of the best books on on helping people understand trade and and how it works around the world, I, I would uh, point you to a guy by the name of Peter Zihon. Uh, and uh, his he's written a series of books. His first book is called The Accidental Superpower. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, if you are uh, an undergraduate agricultural economist at land grant university in America, you are a young farmer trying to understand how the world works. Uh, that book is required reading. That sounds like a good book for most of our students. Well, Ambassador Dowd, thank you for sharing your thoughts and all of these insights um, and helping us understand the Phase One deal as well as the role of agriculture on U.S.-China trade more more generally. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time and insights today. My pleasure, and it was great to be in Nebraska recently. Thank you. We look forward to welcoming you back sometime. (laughs) Thank you. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening, and a big thank you to Alex Wojcicki and J.C. Toman for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yiderinstitute at unl.edu. That's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu. Or follow us on Twitter at YiderUNL. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska.